Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. Uh, I mean, would you thank our worship team again? I mean, that's just uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I, that gets me all motivated to come up here, uh, even though we could close church right after that, but we're not going to. I, mean, I came up for a reason. And I want to remind all of you that we do have some very special guests amongst us in the service. And I know Kaylee mentioned them earlier, but any of you kids, if you are normally in children's church, but today you're not there, you're here with us, we'd like for you to stand right now because we want to tell you how honored we are that you're with us. All our kids in, normally in children's church, stand up. <laughs> That's just awesome. It's so great to have you guys. I want to remind you, if you're not aware, we're in week two of a series we started last week on the parables of Jesus. And we've been doing these studies this year where we encourage you to dig deeper and dive in with a community. And maybe you've never done that before. It's never too late to start. You can do it this week. In the past, we've had books that you could get that walk you through it. In this series, we're actually going to kind of publish a chapter per week, and it's in the form of your worship guide. You've already got that. So here it is. You can take that if, you, if you're a really organized type and you need binders. There's binders available that fit this in the bookstore. And you can also go online, northlandchurch.net slash studies, or you can use one of the apps, an Android app or an iPhone app. And uh, process along, dig deeper, take it. There's video accompaniment where we'll walk you through that because that's where you can unpack this in, in, a, in a powerful way and it's in the context of community. Now, right as we're getting started, why don't we go ahead and acknowledge who the teacher is. Let's talk to him. I'm not the ultimate teacher here. I, I, I'm just here hopefully to not mess things up. Uh, so, would you pray with me as I submit before him in terms of my voice, but all of us submit before him, including me, in terms of our listening. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we're here. Whether it's in this auditorium or online somewhere, but we're not just in the midst of a church service, we're in the midst of our lives, our journeys, our stories. Some of us are riding high, some of us are under the pile, some of us can't wait till tomorrow, some of us are dreading tomorrow. But in a mysterious way, you've assembled us together as we are for this time. This assembly will never again happen this side of heaven with the exact same group of people. But you've got something very significant to say to, to them, to me. I thank you for my friends and your presence. I, I wanna thank you for the gift that they are. I want to say that in their presence. And in their presence, I want to acknowledge that I don't have anything to say to them that would be of any value unless what I say is rooted in your word, enabled by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, teach us. And I pray that you will galvanize us to have an impact in our worlds this week. An impact that's the exact opposite of the tragedy that we are seeing more and more frequently in London yesterday, where hate reigns. May we counter that with your love. We pray for the families impacted. We pray for this world that's impacted. 
And we pray that you would use us to take this world in a different direction. I ask this in the name of the one who loved us first. Amen. Amen. Several years ago, I received an email from a gentleman with a story that he had sent me, and it immediately came one of my all-time favorites. It's a story of a gentleman named Jonathan Blanchard. John Blanchard was a, in the Army back in World War II. He was stationed down here in Florida. Uh, that's pre-air conditioning days. That's how I think about Florida's history is before air conditioning and after air conditioning, and this was before. And he went to something that's a bit of an archaeological artifact these days. It's called a library. And he picked up something that also is kind of an artificial ar archaeological artifact called a book. And he was he checked it out, and he was reading it. He loved what he was reading, but he was more intrigued by what he was reading in the margins. Somebody before him had checked out the same book, read it, and written comments and questions and observations in the margin. And the more he read with each page turn, he started looking forward with each page turn more to what he would read in the margins than what he would read on the actual, uh, in the actual print. It was a very, very beautiful handwriting. He figured it was a woman. And some of you will remember these days when you checked out a book from the library, you could actually see who had had it before you. You looked in the back and see the different names and where the stamp was, when the due date. And so he compared the handwriting that he was reading with the handwriting there. And bingo, there was the name. Hollis Maynell was her name. He was so gripped by what he had been reading and drawn to what he had been reading and to her, he set about to try to locate her. And he did, incredibly, tracked her down to New York City, got an address, and wrote her a letter. And he said, you don't know me. He explained who he was, what he was doing down in Florida. He was stationed in the Army, could get shipped out any day. And, but he said, I, I read your notes. and I, I, really drawn to how you, how you do life, and would you be willing to correspond with me?" Which is another archaeological artifact, correspondence. Then the very next day after he mailed that letter to Hollis Maynell, he got shipped off to the European theater. It was a number of weeks. Then he received a letter from her. It, it, she had sent it down to Florida, and then obviously they forwarded it on to Europe. She said, of course, I'd be, I'd be happy to correspond with you. So they started writing letters back and forth. First keying in on the book and the comments there, and then very quickly they went deep. There was just something. There was a click. And after a while, a romance was budding. And so he did as any good GI would do. Ask for, he asked her for a photograph. And she shocked him with her answer. She said, no, photographs aren't important in a relationship like this. He said, okay. They kept going, kept getting deeper and deeper. This went on for a year. And then uh, about the 13th month, he found out he was going to get some leave time, and it was going to be in New York City. So he wrote her and said, would you be willing to meet? She said, of course. So they figured out the meeting time. It was going to be at Grand Central Station at 7 o'clock p.m. on a particular evening. 
And then he tried one more time. He said, would you send me a photograph, please, so I'll know what you look like so I can find you. She said, you don't need a photograph of me. You'll know who I am because I'm going to have a red rose in my lapel. And I'll meet you right underneath, right by the big clock in Grand Central Station. He agreed to have the leather-bound copy of the book that he had stolen from the library with him. <laughs> so that was to introduce him to her and identify him that way. So there he went. He showed up like at 530, you know, and he didn't want to miss it. He's looking at everybody. Finally, 7 o'clock approaches, and he sees this woman walking toward him, gorgeous. I'll let him tell you the rest of the story. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears, and her eyes were as blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved toward her, a small, provocative smile curved on her lips, and she looked at me and murmured, going my way, sailor? Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl that had captured my attention. Hollis Maynell was a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat, and she was more than plump, and her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. And the girl in the green suit, meanwhile, was walking quickly away. I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle about them. So I didn't hesitate. My finger gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious. Something perhaps even better than love. A friendship for which I had been and would forever be grateful. So I squared my shoulders. I walked toward her. I held out the book to the woman. And even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. But I said, hello, I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard. And you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. <laughs> she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should tell you that she's waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test.
And that is how Jonathan Blanchard met his wife. So I've got a question for you. Who's wearing the roses in your life? Let me ask you the same question. It's the same question, just put a little differently. How's your love life? How's your love life? How's your love life? How's yours? And you, how's your love life? For more insight on how to answer that question, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. It's very familiar to us. In fact, it might be almost too familiar. But we're going to slow down and we're going to chew on this. Verse 25, Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law, this is not just a lawyer, lawyer like we would know. This is somebody who knows Torah law, the law of Moses. He stood up, meaning he had been sitting. I know that's deep, but standing up, he was trying to get the upper hand in this. There was some sense of self-importance he had about himself, and he was actually trying to test Jesus. So he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. <laughs> it's brilliant. So the guy stood up to test Jesus, asked him a question. Jesus responded with a question. The man answered his own question. Then Jesus says, that's correct. Go do it. He was saying, wait, 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 That's, this is not how this argument was supposed to go in his mind. He needed to, so he tries to get the upper hand again, but he wanted to justify himself, verse 29. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were known as half-breeds. They compromised their worship. and their race and their legacy. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Denarii is about a day's wage. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then hmm. Jesus asked the million-dollar question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Hmm. So let me ask you again, how's your love life? Now when you hear that, people hear that question, they go in a number of different directions, but usually it's not to the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. See, in English, we got one word love and we use it all the time. I love chocolate cake, I love my dog, I love my wife, I love my truck. Uh, I love my cubs. You know, it, it, we, we use it all over the place. In Greek, there are a number of different words that, we, that are all translated into English, love. In fact, if, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, uh, it's very worthwhile to pick up and study through it because he looks at four of the most dominant words, Greek words for love. One is the affection that a person can have for another person. Storge is the Greek word. Another refers to friendship, phileo. Another one refers to romantic love, eros. But then there's a word that you see in the New Testament about 250 times, agape, agapeo. Agape is a very unique word. You don't see it much in classical Greek literature. Agape is distinctly Christian in the sense that it's not like so many of those other loves, storge and phileo and, and, and eros, you know, the, the affection, the friendship, the uh, romantic love, almost happens to you in a sense. You know, people use the phrase, I fell in love. And there's a mysterious dance that takes place with those words. And uh, it, it, some get drawn into the dance, others don't. Agape is very different. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you do, and you do it very intentionally. It's a volitional decision and action toward another person. And this passage, referring to loving God and loving others, it's agapeo. It's making an intentional decision that's going to be a part of my day and my life and the rhythm of my journey and my story. Agapeo is paying attention to the roses that people are wearing in our lives. So here's my assignment for you and for the guy that I saw in the mirror this morning. This week, I want you to write a love story with your life, with your schedule, with your decisions, with your day. I'm saying that to me as well. Powerful to think of thousands of people from Northland writing love stories, agape, love stories. The Good Samaritan is a love story, an agape love story. So how do we write it? Let me give you four key ingredients. These are four realities, all of which, which must be embraced if we're going to write our love story. They're dealing really with the basic questions of why and who and what and how. Let's go through those one at a time. First, the why. If I'm going to write a love story, the why of my love story is found in living. 
That's our goal. That's for all of us. That's to be our goal is to actually live. You think, well, that's a little silly. I'm living right now. Uh, you know, yes, we're living heart beating, lung breathing, but God determines whether a person is alive or not, not just by whether our heart's beating, our lungs are breathing, but whether we've been redeemed and restored into the original trajectory we were made for. Our humanity has come alive. Because all of us want to not just survive but thrive. We want to flourish. But we wonder how to do it. And incredibly, so many churches at times we mask the gospel and make it about doing religion. Jesus didn't come to, give, to, to start a religion. He didn't come to start a holiday. He didn't come to give us something to do on a Sunday morning. He came to summon the cosmos back to life that was, that's in a penalty of death. Spiritual death that mutes our humanity, that mutes and cloaks the dance of our humanity. And throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus talking about this life. I refer to it as life with a capital L. He says, I've come, John 10, 10, not to start a religion, I've come that you might have life. Paul says, we who were dead in our transgressions and sins, we've come alive. Look at what he tells this man, verse 28. He said, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. Not just you're going to do this and you'll, you'll earn heaven. That's not what he was saying. He said, do this and you'll live. That's live with a capital L. Part of living with a capital L is loving. In fact, I will not live life with a capital L without learning to love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. You see what he's saying there? He says, you, 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 at the epicenter of this life of the gospel is learning to love. For this man, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For him, eternal life was a status. For Jesus, it's an experience. For this man, it's something to earn. Jesus says it's a gift to receive. For this man, it was something in the future. Jesus says, yes, it might be in the future, but eternal life begins now. John 5, 24, Jesus says, he who believes in me has eternal life. At that moment, it's crossed over from death to life. So when I come to Christ, I receive him. I have a new status. I'm alive. But will I experience that new status that's a daily decision, and at the epicenter of that decisioning is my love life. So the why of this love story is found in living. Do you want to live this week? Then do a love story. Here's the second. Second has to do with the who. And the who of this love story is found in looking. The why might be found in living, but the who is found in looking at everyone as image bearers of God. You're created in the image of God, you're created in the image of God, and you're created in the image of God. The rest of you, I don't know what the explanation for you is, right? No. Every one of us, every person you have ever met has been created in the image of God. This man looked, this Samaritan looked. So did the priests and the Levite. They looked, but they didn't look with the eyes of God. I've got an assignment I want to give you right now. It's 
It's going to be a little weird, but it's really quick. Okay, so even though it's weird, it'll be relatively painless. In a moment, I'm going to count to three. On the count of three, I want you to look at someone that you did not come to church with and that you don't know. All right? And if you, it could be that you'll end up looking at each other and make eye contact if that's, if that's the case. Let it be really quick or else it'll get creepy. Okay, so <laughs> mainly you're going to be looking at people. They won't see you looking at them. All right? It's got to be really quick. No weirdness here. Okay, ready? On the count of three, look at somebody you did not come to church with and that you don't know. One, two, three. Look. Okay, look back. That was enough. Did you see the rose? They had a rose. They've, they've got a rose on their lapel. But so often we miss it. The priest missed it. The Levite missed it. The Samaritan did not. He looked at this man understanding this man had value regardless of his outward appearance. He was bruised and battered and broken and unpleasant, but he saw the value of this man as someone created in the image of God. See, that rose that Jonathan Blanchard was looking at, it, it conveyed value. And even though he wasn't drawn to that rose, he, he was committed to engage with that woman with the rose. How do you look at people? How do I look at people? We size everybody up, don't we? Do you, are you worthy of my love? Or do I like you? Do you do something for me? We ask those kind of questions. It's like the, in ancient Greek mythology, there was a, a guy named Procrustes, and it's, it's a gruesome tale. This is an evil guy, but he would come across very nice to to unknowing travelers that would come along the path by his home, especially in bad weather, they would come and he would offer them shelter. And uh, he only had one bed and it was an iron bed and he put them on it. And if they did not fit, if they weren't the exact length of that bed, and I'm going to speak a little vaguely because of our special guest from Children's Church here today. but. Um, if they were too short for that bed, he would make them fit. If they were too long, he would make them fit. We all have Procrustes iron bed in us. I'll love you if you fit, if you, if you filter in the way that I like to do things. No. We're to pay attention to the rose, that rose that's on every person's lapel conveying that they are created in the image of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to earn his love. And too often we make other people earn our love. Hey, if I'm going to be loving toward that person, they got to do this for me and even give me some warm fuzzies. No. Romans 15, 7, accept one another then. Don't, don't put them on your, through your filter or in that bed and make them fit. Accept one another. 
Pay attention to the rose just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So you want to write that love story? I'm, I'm hoping. Because if you want to live, you got to write a love story and live it out this week. So the why is found in living. The who of this love story is found in looking at people differently. Let me give you the what of the love story, and it's found in loving beyond our comfort and our convenience. Typically, we might do nice things as long as it's convenient, as long as it's comfortable. Go back to the text. Verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and live. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then it, Jesus tells the story. Notice the man's question, who is my neighbor? Look at the question Jesus asked in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The, this expert in the law was saying, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, that's not the question. The question is, whose neighbor are you? Don't wait for somebody to come along and advertise himself as a neighbor and just the right. You go be a neighbor. You take the initiative. Love with actions. So we've got the priest. This is Jericho going up to Jericho. is about 15, 16 miles from Jerusalem. It's very probable that this priest who passed by the man and looked at him but didn't look at him as a fellow image bearer, walked on the other side of the, sh of the road, he probably was coming from his, doing his, his services in the temple. He had been doing church. The Levite, they were the liturgists, the liturgical leaders of the, of the temple. He had been, these are two professional Christians, not really, but professional religious people. The Samaritan did something very different. This week, I exited the interstate and drove up, and there's two lanes on the exit, and I'm coming to the light at the end of the exit. I was the only one, there's nobody in front of me. And as I'm driving up, I moved from the left-hand lane to the right-hand lane to be stopped at the light. And do you know why? Because there's a homeless guy over on the left-hand side of the exit ramp, holding a sign. Oh, I've given money before. I've, I've gone and bought them burgers before. I've, I've sat down and talked with them and asked, me, asked them to tell me about what it's like. We've even given a coat to a guy before. But not this time. Not this week. I pulled to the right-hand side so I've, I wouldn't have to deal with him. And do you know what? That morning, I'd read this text in preparation for being a professional religious person today. Some of you are waiting for the punchline that I'm going to redeem. No, it doesn't get any better. I pulled away, and then it hit me. 
I was the priest. I was the Levite. A little while later, I exited in another place and almost ran over uh, the homeless guy because I was coming right at him. I said, I'm not missing this. <laughs> Why the first time did I pull over to the right-hand side? I had a to-do list my, as long as my arm. I knew I didn't have enough time in the day. Got to go, got to go, got to go, got to go. It was not convenient to me and it wasn't comfortable. So I didn't look and see the rose on his lapel, and I didn't love him. Hmm. I repented. Gene Elstein says, who are we? We're creatures who have forgotten what it means to be faithful to something other than ourselves. You and I have a draw to only do what's comfortable and convenient and will benefit us, and we have to reverse that inertia by daily decision, hourly really. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Pay attention to those other interests and needs and serve them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and with truth. Let us not just word love saying it, let's do it. Most of us are far more comfortable with the idea of loving others than we are with the actual doing of it. I mean, I like the idea of being a loving guy. So do you. But we got to move from liking the idea to actually doing it. So this week, you want to live, don't you? with a capital L, life of the gospel. That's going to mean you're going to write a love story with your schedule, with your decisions. I'm going to do that. It's going to first involve looking at people differently and seeing the rose on their lapel, seeing that they're created in the image of God. God's going to lay something on your heart regarding someone. Might be somebody that you know or maybe a total stranger. Then it'll involve loving them beyond comfort and convenience. But here's the deal. Here's the fourth one. How? Here's the how. The how is found in lavishing them with the love of God through you. Me lavishing others with the love of God through me. So this love story starts, the why is living. The who is looking at people differently. The what is loving people sacrificially, but the how is lavishing them with the love of God through me. Go back to the text. What does the Samaritan do? He doesn't just throw a $20 bill at the guy. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and then he brought him to an inn, then took care of him. Do you see how inconvenient this is? And also how expensive? The next day he took out, he took out two denarii, uh, which would cover about three weeks' worth of food, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. We don't like to do that. We love to get the credit for loving without it costing us a whole lot. Like the story of the guy who bought his wife this really expensive diamond ring for Christmas. And a buddy of his who knew them as a couple said, that's, that's pretty amazing. I, I thought your wife wanted one of those four-wheel drive uh, vehicles. And the guy said, oh, yes, yeah, she does. But I, how do you find a fake Jeep? Notice how all the women are getting that, but the men are not real sure because it's something that we're really good at. We love getting credit for something that, and people thinking it costs us more than it did. This is turning that on its ear and actually loving people lavishly, over the top. Might be cost in, in money or cost in time or cost in energy. But it's lavishing them. Now, the how, it's a double meaning. The how is methodology, and I just gave that to you, but the how also in terms of enablement. Here's how we do it. You know the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, which is true. But loved people, love people. And the how is not just lavishing others with the love of God. The how is embracing the lavish love of God for me. Do you know how loved you are? Do I know how loved I am? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Not doled it out, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. So Jesus gives us the enablement in John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. But then here's what he does, he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I've loved you. One of the reasons we don't love is because we don't know how loved we are. You, you grown-ups, you've been in here, you've, you've seen this. The kids haven't. It's a difference between a bucket and a pipe. You pour something in a bucket, it stays there and gets stagnant and gross. You pour something in a pipe, it flows through there elsewhere. When the love of God comes into a religious person's life, and they're just religious and they're wanting the status, it comes here. It's beautiful when it enters, but after a while, it ceases to be something beautiful. It ceases to be the love of God. It becomes something prideful. And, and you don't give it away. The Samaritan was a pipe. God loved him, he loved somebody else. That's all it is, is giving away the love that God has given to us. And what's shocking about the story is that if you were to wonder who's really living in this story, is it the, the rich guy, the lawyer, is it the smart guy, the priest, is it the artistic guy, the Levite? No, it was the Samaritan. Despised by the Jews. And the shocking thing is, who was most in touch with the love of God? Not the legal expert, not the priest, not the Levite, but the Samaritan. 
And so, let's take some time realizing there's a rose on our lapel and that we've been loved by the living God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another.